Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com, coming to you from Amsterdam and the site of ULAR 2018. This podcast is part of our expanded coverage of ULAR. You can find us on our daily email from RoomNow or by going to the website ULAR18.RoomNow.com. Now the podcast. This is going to be a collection of audio reports from RoomNow faculty, key opinion leaders, or abstract presenters from the meeting. I hope you enjoy the podcast and be sure to tell your friends to tune into Room Now to follow these podcasts and to subscribe. Take care. This is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh, and I'm here at ULAR 2018 for Room Now. Uh, it's a good meeting, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of good topics being covered. A topic that has had a lot of interest over the past few years is biosimilars. And of course, we look toward our European colleagues for a lot of the best and newest information about biosimilars because they have actual experience using these molecules more than we've had a chance to in the United States. A topic that has been of great concern, if you will, or interest to physicians, to patients, is the idea of multiple switches. And that's been covered by a couple of abstracts here at ULA 2018. There are two abstracts, one from Sweden, one from Denmark, where patients were on an originator biologic. They were switched to a biosimilar because it was less expensive. And then, in these analyses, they looked at patients who switched back to the originator. And it's an important topic, and I look for more information about these. Uh, but in these analyses, it seemed that the patients who switched back and forth and back actually seemed to do pretty well clinically. Uh, there's obviously a lot of patient input that's important for this. Some of the, in the Danish cohort of patients, what happened was the patients wanted to switch back and the patients and doctors chose to go from the biosimilar back to the originator. So uh, it raises the idea of the nocebo effect, meaning patients may be on a medicine and even if that medicine is effective, if they don't think it's going to be effective, then it may impact how well they feel they're doing. So uh, it's an important topic. There are about 30 abstracts on biosimilars at this meeting and a lot of other in, uh, up-to-date and interesting rheumatologic topics being covered here at ULA. This is Artie Kavanaugh, ULA 2018 for RoomNow. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com, coming to you from ULAR 2018. This afternoon, I ended the day by going to a session by Georg Chet, a really interesting session. Um, it was about bench to bench side, and his particular lecture was called, Does It Matter to the Clinician? Can Pathophysiologic Knowledge Lead to Better Patient Care? Once he got over the shock of having to do that lecture, he sort of organized his thoughts around the concepts of pathophysiology, what we know about uh, disease and how it relates to psoriatic arthritis and risk in future therapy. It was a highly interesting session wherein he sort of laid out for us maybe some of the new thinking and how it could lead to some new changes in the management of psoriatic disease. First off, he talked about a biomarker. Everyone loves a biomarker and he said that we should not lose sight of the fact that we have a biomarker in psoriatic arthritis and it's called psoriasis, meaning those are the people who are at risk. And we just now need to know what are the risk factors that can lead to the development of psoriatic arthritis. Uh, first on his list was the idea of mechanical stress. He says that the psoriatic state being at risk for psoriasis, whether it's genetically at risk or otherwise at risk, is influenced by 
physical stress may be leading to skin disease, but certainly leading to the articular manifestations, everything from the enthesitis, the uh, uh, synovitis, the spondylitis, even the nail disease is felt to be due to um, mechanical stress. Uh, and one of the key elements that underlies this, when one looks at the risk factors for developing psoriatic arthritis, um, many have been pro, uh, proposed, um, but one that you may not recognize is occupational heavy lifting. Is probably one of the only ones on the list that he showed us that was in fact significant, uh, suggesting that that, especially in males, becomes a significant risk factor. So he went through this, uh, basically stating that there's obviously a, a preclinical phase where people can become uh, at risk, that there are risk factors like the usual ones, uh, obesity and uh, lifestyle such as smoking, etc. But that can lead to, uh, along with this mechanical stress, lead to immunologic activation. Uh, in fact, he supports that by showing data of psoriatic arthritis patients who stop their DMAR therapies and what is the risk for relapse of disease after one has stopped the, uh, taking the, the, the drugs. And it turns out that those who are at greatest, greatest risk, and by far and away, um, way above the comparator group, were males. Males were at great risk for uh, recurrence of their disease uh, and for um, uh, flares, uh, much more so than women. So that's important to take note of. The early recognition is obviously an important part, and, and, uh, and that may be because uh, of the threshold for identification is different in that skin's easy to see, joints not so much. So there is an early threshold that we, one has to go through. But that all becomes important and leads to um, um, factors such as nail disease. Uh, and nail disease is, as we know, a risk factor for developing um, psoriatic arthritis, but that's part of that mechanical stress that is, that's, needs to be present that leads to an increased risk of the, of the disease. Turns out that when you look for evidence of enthesitis, another sign of mechanical stress, this also becomes something that portends the onset of disease. And if you look at um, uh, the, the, those who have abnormal MRIs or abnormal ultrasounds uh, as features of mechanical stress, it looks like that that too predicts the disease. So it is a systemic disease. It was one that needs to be controlled. It is not driven by IL-6 and CRP. Instead, it seems to be largely driven by um, IL-23 and IL-17 and possibly IL-12. Uh, and, and you know, he used his uh, bedside to bench slide that actually shows that really, really well. IL-17 obviously is a key player and, and therefore why it is a new target in developing disease. He made a point that uh, in addition to the enthesopathy, there's the arthritis, but often the arthritis is overstated in clinical trials. That um, in practice, it's probably um, a lot fewer joints that are involved. The oligoarticular disease, asymmetric polyarticular disease, is far more common than the very polyarticular uh, patients who are enrolled in trials. And enthesopathy is often involved in practice and may not often be appreciated. Uh, and so what has been seen is that uh, the more interesting new data is that IL-23, um, whether individually like Aselkamab or in combination with 1223 inhibition, uh, really hasn't fared all that well um, when it comes to managing things like uh, axial disease and enthesitis and, and whatnot. Uh, so 
Enthesitis responds more like the skin than the joints um, in, in, some, in, in some trials that were shown, especially with ustekinumab. So um, that's an interesting factor that he presented. He's going forward looking at fingerprinting patients, developing profiles uh, of gene expression that may be important in identifying uh, those at risk. So again, what makes this an unusual disease is the combination of enthesitis and synovitis uh, and its effect on growing new bone. But the disease needs to be considered maybe in a different manner, that there may be risk which can be modified by lifestyle and then immunology, which can be modified by therapeutics. So lifestyle would be avoiding mechanical stress, avoiding obesity and uh, smoking, and then dealing with uh, some of the magnifiers of disease in the comorbidities, whether it's managing hyperuricemia, cardiovascular risk, or depression. These are a lot of the concepts that were covered. It was a very stimulating, intellectually stimulating um, a session run by Professor Georg Chet. We want to thank him for that. Uh, that's it tuning in from ULAR and Amsterdam. Enjoy room now. Hello everyone, this is Olga Petrina reporting from uh, the annual uh, ULAR meeting here in Amsterdam. Um, I would like to tell you about the study presented by Dr. George from U University of Pennsylvania, where they observed patients who underwent total knee arthroplasty while on biologic therapy, and they assessed for infectious complications after surgery. Patients who enrolled in the study were on biologic therapy for at least one year, uh, and for those who received the retoxin, they, they had to have their infusion at least 16 weeks before, um, before surgery. And uh, outcomes that were measured were infections, uh, hospitalizations within 30 days, readmissions within 30 days, and one year prosthetic joint infections. It's been shown in this uh, study that patients, while on biologics, have comparable outcomes in terms of infection except for uh, patients on uh, tocilizumab, where infection risk was much higher, although uh, authors uh, noted that uh, they had very few patients on tocilizumab and that could have affected the result. Also, across all uh, biologic groups, risk of infectious complications, readmissions, or prosthetic joint infections were higher in patients who received uh, concomitant prednisone treatment, particularly prednisone in a dose more than 10 milligram daily. It has uh, been concluded in the study that prednisone may increase the risk of uh, infectious complications in patients on biologics, and it is recommended that we uh, lower or try to lower prednisone dose uh, prior to surgery, regardless of their biologic therapy. Thank you, and if you want to know more, please follow us on Room Now. Thank you. Hello, I'm Peter Lipsky, and I'd like to tell you about a trial we've been carrying out with peglodicase. One of the issues about peglodicase is that even though it's a very effective molecule, patients have a tendency to develop anti-drug antibodies. And we looked at the initial pharmacokinetics of this molecule from the previously published randomized controlled trials. And as you can see, after the initial dose, by two weeks, the blood level is quite low. The circumstance which favors the development of anti-drug antibodies. So we propose that by giving an extra dose, one week after the first dose, we would avoid this trough level of zero and would have uh, much higher levels 
and be into the range when we would expect high dose, high zone tolerance and less uh, anti-drug antibody formation. In fact, the results of the trial showed some uh, improvement in the sense that more people could respond, but we still had a number of people who failed to have persistent response. But when we looked at individuals one week after the administration of peglodicase here, at a time when their uric acid levels were very low, well, we could see that they divided into two groups based upon the mean level of serum peglodicase. There was a group that had higher levels and a group that had lower levels. And in fact, this was the group that had a persistent response. This was the group that tended to make anti-drug antibodies. And if you look at these groups in more detail, you can see that those who got above the threshold level of peglodicase, in that group about 75% were responders, whereas those who didn't get into that or didn't achieve that level, only 30% were responders. So this has now given us a target level of peglodicase that we can aim for, and we're now expanding this trial by giving a loading dose of 16 milligrams with the anticipation that we'll get more people into the higher uh, level of peglodicase activity and as a result have less anti-drug antibody and more tolerance to the Hello everyone, this is Olga Petrina reporting from the EULAR meeting here in Amsterdam. Uh, today I wanted to tell you about the study on pregnancy outcomes in secukinumab uh, treated patients. It is an Italian study presented by Dr. Moroni as a poster uh, where she observed six patients who uh, conceived while on secukinumab treatment while receiving 150 milligram of secukinumab after loading schedule for at least 45 uh, weeks uh, from the start of therapy. Patients were able to continue treatment for another seven to eight, to eight weeks until their pregnancy test became uh, positive and at that time medication was discontinued. In this uh, study, they did not see any uh, fetal malformations in, 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 in these patients and all pregnancy were uneventful with no uh, negative pregnancy outcomes. All babies who were born in the studies were uh, pr um, presented with APGAR score of more than eight at birth and uh, mothers were able to stay in low disease activity score uh, with uh, disease activity scores of less than four. So far the medication seems to be safe but of course the, 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 the amount of patients is very small and more additional studies or data collection will be required to, uh, to continue proving safety of secukinumab in pregnant patients. Thank you, have a nice day and if you want to know more please follow us on Room Now. Hi, I'm Philip Robinson from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia and I'm here in the beautiful city of Amsterdam for ULAR 2018 and I wanted to tell you about the session that I've just come from. It's a crystal arthritis session. Uh, there were a number of great abstracts uh, but I want to tell you about three or four today. The first one is a study from Fernando Perez Ruiz from Spain. He took 650 crystal arthritis patients who had CPPD demonstrated it on aspirate and then looked for severity markers and what the predictors were and he, and he saw that having uh, hemochromatosis genotypes was associated with more severe disease and also cases had higher ferritins. 
so that's certainly interesting and that's one of the biggest studies of uh, crystal demonstrated CPPD so hopefully we'll see more research in this under-researched area. Uh, the other thing was there was a great analysis of, um, of some pegloidocase trials. They looked at the uh, people who were responders and the responders uh, who uh, were treated monthly uh, were more likely to have flares and that's probably because of the seesawing nature of the uric acid that you see that you didn't see with the two weekly responders. So the take home from that is to use it two weekly and not monthly. Uh, the other, there was another interesting study from Brazil where they did CT scans on a whole lot of, uh, of gout patients and saw that 30% of them had stones. Now when you ask them, only 16% said they had stones. So the take home from that is uh, twice the number of people who say they have stones do have stones. They're not necessarily urate stones, maybe that's for another study. And finally, there was a really interesting study that res um, replicated the result of the CARES uh, study recently published in the New England Journal. It was a propensity study, matching study from South Korea that used 50,000 patients and showed that there was an increase in death uh, when you took uh, for Buxistat compared to allopurinol. So that means there's a number of studies now showing that result. Um, so I'm Philip Robinson from the University of Queensland and I'm here now in the beautiful city of Amsterdam and uh, if you want more information go to roomnow.com. Hi, I'm uh, Roman Kavanagh, I'm a rheumatologist from Galway and I'm at ULAR in Amsterdam this year. Um, I was at a session on sclerodermal this morning um, and I wanted to talk to you about an abstract, um, an oral presentation um, that I heard this morning. I have to say normally this kind of research is something that I would uh, probably walk on past um, but it's about digital ulcers in scleroderma which um, I find extremely difficult to uh, treat and this is um, a study um, of the use of autologous um, adipose graft transplant um, for the treatment of digital ulcers in scleroderma um, and the basic principle is that um, the authors take some adipose tissue um, uh, from uh, the abdominal wall, um, spin it down with the centrifuge, take the cells out and inject it into the base of the affected um, digit. Um, and they took a population and they compared that to a sham uh, placebo injection with saline. Um, so they took a group of patients with scleroderma with uh, non-healing um, digital ulcers and they randomised them. Um, and in one group they treated 25 patients um, with the autologous fat transplant um, and in a smaller group of 12 patients they used a saline injection and the primary um, endpoint was um, the prevalence of healed ulcers um, at, the, at, a, at a four week and eight week um, time point um, and secondary outcome measures were um, pain and the number of dilated capillaries seen on video capillaroscopy.